Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Donald Trump isn't having a very good week. All right. We really, really have an amazing first episode for everyone today. First, we're going to talk to President Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, all about how the administration is making decisions, as well as how they're handling inflation in America today. Then we'll talk to Bloomberg opinion editor, Tim O'Brien, about the subject he knows best, which is Donald Trump. And he's going to tell us what to think about Trump's terrible, terrible week. But first, we have a moment that many of you listeners have been waiting for. It's time to reunite two former New Abnormal co-hosts. Here's founder of The Lincoln Project, Rick Wilson and Molly Jong-Fast. Welcome to the podcast, Rick Wilson. Who? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) That was so bad. He's back. Since I was exiled a year and a half ago into the chill outer darkness (laughs) of not having a podcast, (laughs) since the cruel hand of fate descended on me. He's continued to be quite famous and appear on television. Rick Wilson. Molly Jong Fast, I am back with you. From the state of Florida. The stone to be destroyed state of Florida. So it turns out that Florida is America, and America is, unfortunately for us, Florida. I mean, what happened? Like, the last year, it's just been the entire Republican Party is all Florida. Well, look, here's the long-understood national cultural and political phenomenon of Florida. It's a fucking magnet for crazy. And it has been that way. And look, I'm a fifth-generation Floridian. Okay, (laughs) my people came here in the 1850s. We're OGs. We're we're like the salt of the damn salt of the earth of Florida. And no one else is. It has become a state where disaffected people from Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, New Jersey, New York have flooded. Now, the New York and New Jersey people flooded down to the Palm Beach and Broward County area. 
And the people from Ohio and Wisconsin flooded into the Tampa Bay area. And a lot of the people from Michigan went down to Naples and Cape Coral. Um, And so we have this enormous demo of people who've moved here in the last 25 years who were pissed off about the high taxes in their states, um, who were getting older, and who wanted to die somewhere warm and cheap. And I can tell you, Florida excels in warm and cheap, whether it's climate, strip clubs, or nursing homes without power during a hurricane. (laughs) So speaking of Florida, again, we're going to talk about this Ron DeSantis fellow. That's President DeSantis to you. (laughs) Neither your friend nor mine, who you have a nickname for. Yes, there's a circle of never Trump Republicans in Florida who have decided, and we know he irritates him now, so we use it frequently. We call him Tater, (laughs) doughy in appearance and mean, starchy in attitude. He's Tater. He's he, he, he's a little he's a little dumpling. <laughs> okay, so there's a new ABC Washington Post poll that shows that Trump's popularity in the Republican Party has dropped a 20 percent since 2020. I'm shocked by this. Discuss. This will definitely be the thing that takes him away from the Republican base, Molly, because it's not like he's talking about John McCain or disabled reporters or grabbing <laughs> pussy or sucking Putin's right. dick or saying that he wants to star in an anime homoerotic fantasy with Kim Jong-un or any other goddamn thing he did for the last seven years. Listen, Donald Trump still controls the Republican base. I haven't looked at this particular survey, but I'm sorry. Wish casting is not a strategy. And he is he is the presumptive nominee for 2024 unless he's dead or in jail. And both of those seem unlikely since obviously we live in the hands of a cruel and angry God. <laughs> this idea, though, that his, he's less popular, sure, maybe so. That means he only controls 25% of the Republican base. Okay, tell me how Ron DeSantis or Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or Nikki Haley or Christy Nome or any other f- fucking moron who gets in the Republican primary when you got a guy who gives you pure unadulterated Trump right and you're offering them diet Trump they're going to pick the real Trump every time it's the Gresham's law of politics bad politics drives out good he's right. he, he he gives them the crack they want and it is not going to go the way a lot of people think it's going to go just because he's in political trouble because he's been going to going to be indicted i will argue all day long an indictment makes him stronger now should we indict him of course we should. Should we put him in jail? Of course we should. Should we have a new punishment involving live wolves and rabies? Of course we should. <laughs> Rub yourself in the gravy, Donald. The wolves are coming. <laughs> but no, no, but let's just let's stay out of Game of Thrones for a minute here. I, I just yes, I understand an indictment makes him more popular with his face, but does an indictment make him more popular with the donor class? Does it make him more popular with Who cares? He raises eighty five percent of his money from small dollars. And you know, this this whole story this week, like the Trump Super PAC didn't raise any more money. Yes, it's because they renamed it and so did a new one. Right. Because that the one that was the one that was sucking down all the money right now is about to be in legal trouble. So they booted up a new one to move all the cash out of the old one. Why is the old one going to be in legal trouble? Criming? <laughs> is that just a supposition, or do you have like a <laughs> no? Well, because they've been using the the Save America Pack essentially to fund Trump's lifestyle. Oh. And a pack can do a lot of shit, right? But it can't go out and buy you do repairs on your jet. And you think that's going to come out? Yes. So I just want to get back to this idea for a second. 
we have a situation where Trump can only get, I mean, he can get 30%, but he can't get enough to win anything in a general election. Are you sure? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think he can't, I mean. Because I can I, I can tell you that 30 or 40% calculates in the populations of California, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Oregon, and Washington. And guess what it doesn't calculate in? The populations of Florida, or, or it does calculate it, but, they, but they're disproportionately right, right, right. Um, underrepresented in the, in the hard number versus the electoral college count. I can absolutely absolutely draw you a scenario where Donald Trump at 35 or 40% popularity wins the Republican primary and then wins the general election. I don't like that. I would rather live somewhere far away, preferably another planet, (laughs) but it's the fact. And we have to be real about this because the biggest failure of everyone, of the old Republican party, of the media, of the Democrats, of the Hillary campaign, and damn near of the Biden campaign in 2020 is to underestimate the worst case scenario. Never never think that it can't get worse and worse things can't happen because they do. Um, so, so my point is, this is a this is a a guy who, no matter what has gone wrong in our world for him, the average Republican voter, when it's against Joe Biden again, they won't say, "Well, he stole nuclear secrets. He kept a, a bunch of top secret stuff in a room with his, you know, old clothes, signed newspapers, and." <laughs> they will say. Don't say that. They will say. The FBI conspired with the deep state because the pedophiles want to get Donald Trump save the babies. Right. And enough of them will do that. Right. And look, you, you go into a multiple candidate field in 2024, and let's say it's DeSantis, who what, right now looks like the best of the batch in terms of you know having the money, the campaign infrastructure, the cruelty, the psychosis to meet all the tests. But you also end up with Nikki Haley and Christy Nome and right, Tom and Cotton and Josh Hall and, and Ted Cruz and whatever other crowd of skells and weirdos decide <laughs> they're going to do it. Okay, you go to Iowa. And you know what? Donald Trump goes to Iowa and he gets... Starts, starts with 20, 25% of the vote at a minimum. And the race is going to smear that peanut butter all over the map. And you're going to end up with, he goes and wins Iowa. And he goes and wins New Hampshire. And he goes and wins South Carolina. But we have to talk about the midterm as opposed to just my anxiety, okay? Hello, I'm Rick Wilson. How may I ratchet your anxiety? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really, I'm just sitting here getting more and more anxious. I'm already stressed enough. Can we just talk about the midterms? Well, the midterms, if you had asked me this question eight months ago when I was thrown off a podcast and didn't have one anymore. Um, <laughs> you shut up. And cruelly, and cruelly thrown into the cold night. Um, I would have said that the Republicans were going to win 65 House seats. Right. And would have a, and would have a probably a plus four or even plus five in the Senate. Now, Donald Trump saved us by picking <laughs> the most outrageously weird, dumb, corrupt, stupid, creepy, fuckwit crowd of absolute mouth-breathing, gutter-snipe, moron fuckwits that I could have possibly imagined. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like you're censoring yourself so much. I know, right? I'm really, I am really. I feel like I'm holding back. Maybe it's because yeah, I'm really, not used to being on a podcast anymore. Okay. I don't know. Shut up. You have your own podcast. But the fact that you didn't get a Purdue in Georgia, you didn't get uh, a McCormick in Pennsylvania, you didn't get a Temkin in Ohio, and so on and so on and so on. Well, what and you what got- what about Arizona? Oh, Blake Masters. Jesus Christ. Well, listen, <laughs> I want to talk about Arizona a little bit in a minute. That's a separate okay. and horrible topic of its own. <laughs> <laughs> but it has opened up the possibility of- winning in Pennsylvania. And Fetterman, you know, has, has, despite all the terrible personal stuff that has befallen him, the guy has 
well overperformed in an increasingly red state. Yeah. Dr. Oz is, I could not have picked a worse, weirder, <laughs> more Turkish New Jersey candidate than Dr. Oz. Because, you know, everybody's thinking to themselves, I'm really looking for a guy who's both from Turkey and from Jersey. <laughs> you know, he voted in the 2000, in the 2018 Turkish elections. Yes, I'm aware. Do you know when he was in the Turkish military, he swore an oath that includes things like Allah. Now, I will say, if a if a Democrat had done the same thing, I promise you it would be nonstop. Right. Fox would have already spun off a separate satellite channel. The Muslim threat. Right, right. How will we face it? Right, right. If it if if Oz had been a Democrat and it was and the and the the boot was on the other foot, they would do that. It would be like yeah, Mehmet Oz of Turkey. All day long, they would do the whole uh, Barack Hussein Obama. Obama. Yeah, for sure. The drama. I want to talk to you about this. So so you think those candidates are going to keep Democrats? It's, it seems likely. They're I mean, in the hunt, okay? Right. They're yeah. in the hunt. And and there's a degree to which the, the competitive nature of bad candidate selection in the Republican primaries where- Or as old crow Mitch McConnell calls it, candidate quality. Candidate quality, Molly's real. It's very real. People say candidate quality is much like my sexuality. A seething- <laughs> All right, you have to target. censor yourself. A seething target. There's the beat, well, there's the beat button everybody was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! All right, you, you know, Molly, candidate quality. All right, all right. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Uh, no, well, listen. All, all kidding aside, yeah, this is one of the rules that guys like me, who came up in Republican politics from the Lee Atwater era on, we learned two fundamental rules: one, just win, baby, and two, candidate quality matters. Right. And so, in 2012. In the wake of the Tea Party, the Republicans got a hard on for crazy, and so you ended up with you know Christine O'Donnell and and Aiken, all these other subpar, low quality candidates got their asses kicked. Well, Mitch summoned the tribe immediately after the election and said, "We're never doing that shit again." Right. I'm sorry. That's sort of a Nixon, yeah, no, McConnell mashup. We we got the idea. Although I just I just had a great parody ad idea called. (laughs) Songs of Passion with Mitch McConnell. Oh, Jesus no, Christ, no, no. please. I, Jesse and I are like having anxiety. They're like, but- this is why you were thrown <laughs> off the podcast. <laughs> but here's a, here's a question for you. If Republicans do not recapture the Senate. I think McConnell resigns. Or, I mean, not resigns, excuse me, retires. Why? He serves out, but I think he retires. How come? Well, he's up there. For one thing. Right. But that has never stopped an American politician ever. Yes. Look at the leadership of the Democratic (laughs) Party in the House. Right. I mean, look at everywhere. It's so young and sprightly and fresh. (laughs) So you think he just is done? I think he will see at that point two things. One is that he no longer controls his caucus because people that are coming into that caucus are increasingly not like Mitch McConnell, they're like Tommy Tuberville. Right. You know, who, who's a guy who's like an example of like lead paint warnings from the 1970s. <laughs> Don't let your child drink lead paint chips. <laughs> Tommy, stop licking that wall. Stop it, Tommy. And, and, and Cindy Hyde-Smith 
and and even Rick Scott, who has done America a, an enormous favor this year by incinerating $150 million of donor money. Yeah, where did that money go? $19 million went into text messaging. $16 million <laughs> went into American Express bills. Now, I'm sorry. For what? My super PAC has taken a lot of shit. We only spent 85.6% of our, of our money, which is higher than everybody else, by the way, on direct voter contact. But nobody ever got their Amex bills paid by the Lincoln Project. Get the fuck out of here. These people, it is a gigantic griftorama. Rick Scott brought in a bunch of people because, and I'm not exaggerating, kidding, or joking. I'm just exhausted even telling you this. After Rick Scott in 20, won in 2010, right. one of his senior strategists came out of a meeting and said, everything we do from now on is running for president. I just can't imagine who thinks this person is going to be president. I thought, you know, we've had Barack Obama, America's first African-American president. We may someday have Hillary Clinton. At the time, I thought this, you know, a woman president. But is America really ready for our first, our first reptile American president? I don't think so. I don't think so. Look, and I'm not anti-reptile. Right. Um, God knows, I, I have an alligator in my lake behind my house right now. I have not killed. I thought you shot him. No, that's an, that was another. That's just the new gator. Okay, I'm glad we've. He yeah. stayed very far back in the back of the the swamp right now. He's only been like near the edge of the verge in the back by the top of the meadow once this year. So he has been allowed to live. But. But, but I do think it's a good a good point that there are a lot a lot of Republicans in the Senate who have presidential ambitions. Almost almost all of them, strangely enough. Well, I mean, I think Cindy Hyde Smith, you can count her out. <laughs> Possibly. And Marsha Blackburn does not see a world where she becomes president. You know, I, I hope not. I, <laughs> I hope not. I I think she, I, I'd like Marsha to see a world where, world where she becomes literate and cordate. But uh, you know, these are these are lofty goals for that for that world. But what are you seeing in the in the House races? What do you think about the House races? <laughs> Look, the House races for Republicans have fallen off somewhat. Right. But I caution Democrats who've been picking out curtains and deciding what bills they're going to pass on the first day. You better. Watch yourselves because redistricting is still a powerful normative force in this election. There's still a very, 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 very significant probability that Republicans are competitive enough to bring you to a tie ball game in the House. God, can you imagine who, I mean, how would that even play? Do you see a world in which McCarthy stays as, as the leader? Look, I think, I think Elise Stefanik really wanted it. She was working it under the surface for a while. And since Elise Stefanik basically has the charisma of dryer lint. (laughs) Right. And is the Gretchen Wieners of Congress. You know, it just, it it didn't come together like she thought. So she announced the other day, she's going to stay and run for, for uh, caucus chair again, conference chair, excuse me. And it really comes down to uh, whether or not Trump's sadism plays itself out right after the election, because there's nothing Trump loves more, as you saw with J.D. Vance this week, than torturing someone who has ever offended him. Right. And that, was a, that was an amazing moment where he said, J.D. Vance is kissing my ass. Is that what he said? If you did something like that in D.C. to be that humiliated in Washington, right. I have some recommendations. They're friends of mine. Not, not, I'm not a client, but I do know who they are. Oh, Jesus who Christ. will perfectly, Rick, happily abuse you. you in line. Who I will happily abuse you I and humiliate you for a 
a, a, a less intensive thing than running for U.S. Senate. I feel like you're more unhinged than usual today. <laughs> but I mean that with all the love in the world. It did that J.D. Vance, Trump humiliate, absolutely humiliating J.D. Vance and then covering with, yes, but MAGA loves him. And, you know, I mean, that was sort of amazing. Do you think J.D. Vance, J.D. Vance wins, though, because Ohio is so red, right? Ohio is a very red state. And Tim Ryan has has a very credible approach, personality, temperament, all those things. But MAGA Republicans in Ohio are by far the largest demo in the party. And they look at Tim Ryan, a moderate Democrat by any scoring mechanism, and say, right. he's a predator, pedophile, gay, communist, you know, whatever. And and we can't vote for him because of the children. Right, right, right. I will keep my counsel, but you come back to me after the election if, if Tim Ryan doesn't make it, because I have I, I will have something else to say about things at that point. Uh, well, who are the Democratic candidates that you're really excited about? Well, I'm very happy with where Whitmer's ended up. Okay. Uh, we were we were worried about Whitmer earlier in the year, and that was going to be one of our big focus areas. And look, because Mich- we're in Michigan because, you know, at this point, because Jocelyn Benson is actually the most important seat in the country in a weird way. Oh, no, not in a weird way. I mean, you, I mean, Michigan could never go for another yeah, Especially again. because these, the suite of Republican candidates in Michigan is practically Arizonan in its shittiness. Yeah. I mean, they really don't believe in democracy even at all. No, they're really, they're done with democracy. Democracy is an, an inconvenience. Well, look, we're also very closely following Arizona because you end up with Kerry Lake as governor and what's his ding dong as secretary of state. Uh, that's Mark Fincham. And you might as well not go compete in Arizona if you're a Democrat. Right. You might as well right, just, right. you know, put up a wall around the state. You want a wall, motherfuckers? You get one. Here you go. <laughs> we ran an ad a couple of weeks ago after Kerry Lake said, I want to get out of the federal government. Right. And the voiceover guy said, he goes, that would mean we lose all of our air traffic control. That'll <laughs> be fun. <laughs> <laughs> but look, uh, listen, this is a year where two big factors, to loop back to what I was saying earlier, have changed the battlefield for Democrats. The first significant factor is, of course, the shitty candidates on the Republican side. And the further decline of the entire Republican party into this psychotic, angry, objectionist, fury-mongering, every, everything is a crisis, every single thing. Oh my God, I saw a sign for a open gender bathroom. That means, you know, any second now my kids will have mandatory reassignment surgery. These panics they get into, this catalog of imaginary demons they ride with, it's made them less and less and less uh, rational about everything. Yeah, that's Now, the second big factor is Dobbs. The thing that Dobbs did that's bigger politically than I think a lot of people have worked through in their heads is the demographic of voters in the Republican Party, if you model it, about 22 to 25% of Republican women are pro-choice. Right. About 15 to 18% of Republican men are pro-choice. Right. There's also a weird demographic. It's kind of me, by the way, a weird demographic that- Whatever you feel about abortion as a moral issue, you have a bigger concern about the overreach of government in your bank account, your bedroom, your bathroom, and your browser history. But but what I'm saying is that's what we saw in Kansas. Right. That's what's driving a lot of this way, way, way over the over the expected margins of voter of registration. Women registering to vote for as Democrats. Yeah. There's a lot going on here that is very meaningful driven by the effective Dobbs on the center, not on the left. Yeah. There's also a little bit of like, 
a, not buyer's remorse, but a sense that, you know, they've reached the pinnacle. This was the number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 priority for social conservatives for years. Right. You know, unless they, and they know that gay marriage is not going to be as easy, honestly, as, as, you saw this new polling, 71% of Americans support gay marriage. Yeah. Thank you, Rick Wilson, for joining me. I hope you'll come back. I'll consider it. We'll see. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late everyone, there was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Ron Klain is White House Chief of Staff under President Joe Biden. Welcome to Fast Politics, Ron Klain. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start by talking about gas prices because I feel like gas prices is a hard thing for a president to control. And yet things have been going great with gas prices. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and then also talk about what's happening with OPEC in October and if you think that'll affect yeah. So um, we have had a streak. We're doing this on the on the 20th. We are at 97 consecutive days in a row of gas prices declining. It's one of the longest streaks in many, many years. Uh, it's every single day in July, every single day in August, every single day in September so far. So why did that happen? Uh, obviously, a lot of things, some things are beyond the president's control, but President Biden has taken some very strong steps to uh, try to give people relief on gas prices. Uh, one of those steps 
was ordering the largest release in history from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, 180 million barrels of oil. We're in the process of selling them off. Uh, most of that is finished, but there's still two significant sales left. That helps bring down the price by putting more oil in the market. Oil that we're not pumping out of the ground, oil that has already been pumped out of the ground and is in storage uh, for just such a purpose. We've also worked with our allies to do the same things. Uh, sales from strategic petroleum reserves in uh, several of the European countries also helping to bring this down. Now, the other thing the president's done is he's made it very clear to the oil companies and uh, all the parts of this industry that as the price of oil declines, the price of gas needs to come down too. Too often we've seen cases where the price of oil goes, comes down, but the price of gas doesn't come down. There's an old saying, uh, rockets up, feathers down. That when the price of oil goes up, the price of gas goes up super fast. When the price of oil goes down, the price of gas goes down slowly. And we've made it clear uh, that's unacceptable. So the price of gas is still too high. We continue to work on this every day, but we do have it moving in the right direction. Now, as for what OPEC is going to do, uh, they have announced a very small production cut. We think that the next uh, sale we do from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve more than offsets that. So uh, I think barring some kind of event that disrupts the supply, like a hurricane uh, in the Gulf or something like that, uh, we think we're on track for continued declines on the price of gas. A lot of the inflationary stuff, it's not really necessarily in the president's control, though the president does almost always get blamed for it. I'm curious, like what you've tried to do that, for example, England has crazy high inflation. What are the things that you guys have done besides with oil? Obviously, uh, energy prices are a big part of inflation. It's why inflation is higher in England than it is here. And it's why inflation in the U.S. has eased as the price of gas has come down. But we have much, a much broader agenda to fight inflation than that. It starts, of course, with also trying to uh, untangle the supply chains that have slowed down. The flow of goods to market raises their price. We've had a supply chain task force making a lot of improvements on how goods get from ports and how they get across the rails, and, and that brings down the price. That's important. Uh, but it's also important to kind of fight inflation where people are, around the kitchen table, where they're paying prices for things. That's why we passed the Inflation Reduction Act to bring down the cost of prescription drugs, which sadly is one of the fastest rising elements of inflation in the United States, to bring down the cost of health insurance premiums, which also really bite people's wallets, to bring down the cost of energy in terms of uh, the cost of heating your home or cooling your home, uh, depending on what time of year it is. And the cost of energy by having more energy efficient appliances and things like that. So we're tackling the kinds of expenses uh, that really take money out of people's wallets and trying to give people, as the president likes to say, a little breathing room, try to make uh, their their budgets, their cost of living more affordable. So one of the things Jesse and I are, are ta uh, were talking about earlier is like, how do you decide what to deal with in this White House? Well, look, I don't think it's a decide situation. I mean, with inflation, you had to. But I mean, like, you guys did this student loan forgiveness. Like, how do things, you know, become what you, you know, where you go with them? Look, I think the starting point for us is the agenda that President Biden ran on. Right. And, you know, I think there was a, obviously a lot of noise in the race and maybe people didn't pay as much attention to the agenda as they should have. But the president ran on a very clear agenda of things he was going to do. He said that he would tackle four great crises facing our country. The economic crisis, people forget. But just two years ago, when he was running for president, we had 20 million people out of work. We had an unemployment rate uh, that was a 10 percent. We had lines of people in cars waiting for a box of food. Mm. He said he'd tackle that. He has. He has created 
more jobs in the first two years of his administration than any president in history. It brought the unemployment rate down to a 50-year low. He said he would tackle uh, COVID, and we have. Uh, we have brought down the uh, number of cases by 80%, brought down the number of deaths by 90%. We've made uh, boosters and tests and treatments widely available. Uh, that's made a lot of progress in our country. He said he would tackle the climate crisis, and we have. We've brought along the most significant climate change legislation in American history, possibly in world history. The president signed into law last month tackling that, and he said he would tackle the racism crisis. President has an administration that looks like America for the first time, first time ever in history that majority of the cabinet is not white, first time ever in history, had the kind of percentage of African Americans in every aspect of the government. He's also signed a police reform executive order to change the way we police in this country, We've given tremendous aid to HBCUs. We brought down the black unemployment rate significantly. So those four crises are kind of the center of our agenda and what we have been dealing with since we got here. So you have an in a sort of interesting and delicate trade situation. Can you explain to us a little bit about the Inflation Reduction Act and what's happening in trade? I, it's so interesting to me because I have seen in my lifetime such a sort of an about face on trade, too. Yeah, I think, look, um, you know, right now. Uh, the U.S. dollar is very, very strong because our economy is very, very strong. And that's really leading something that we haven't seen in a long time, which is the major factor in global trade right now is U.S. exports, not things we're buying from other countries, things we're selling to other countries. We've set an all-time record for exports uh, last month, the most this country's ever exported in a single year. And that's creating a lot of jobs here in America. We've seen this resurgence of manufacturing jobs. We've created more manufacturing jobs these two years than any time since the early 1960s. America is making things and the world is buying what we make. And that is a tremendous boon for our economy and for our workers. Uh, we're always off, always trying to work with partners on uh, you know, having effective trade regimes. Obviously right now, a lot of trade we have with Europe is critical to keeping Europe in good shape as we fight this war, as the Ukrainians fight this war uh, of Russian aggression and, and supplies from Europe. They need backing from Europe. So our trade relationships with Europe are a very important part of that overall effort of backing up Ukrainian security. You know, trade is a vital element of what we do. Do you think there's an opportunity for the U.S. and the U.K. to have a sort of special relationship because of England leaving the EU? There's two issues there. I think one is, do we have a special relationship with the U.K.? We do, obviously. It's uh, the longtime relationship and probably our closest relationship with another country. Then the question is, would we wind up with a separate trade agreement uh, with the U.K.? That could happen at some point in time. But Prime Minister Truss herself has said she doesn't expect it to happen anytime soon. And I don't think it will. We have this situation with the chips. Can you talk about this for a minute? Chips are going to be a big, big, big part of the future. And there's really been a Biden uh, push to manufacture chips here, which I think is is exciting. But it also it's been sort of a conflict with Asia, right? Well, look, I think that the world is highly dependent on chips manufactured in Taiwan. And they are great chips. We're certainly happy to import those chips. But the need for chips has just escalated out of control. I think we all know virtually everything we have in our homes has a computer chip in it, not just our computers, but our, our toasters and our coffee makers. And, you know, just almost everything in your kitchen has a chip in it now. Your smart refrigerator and smart oven and all these things. And so many of them go into our cars. 
And so there aren't enough chips. One of the reasons why we've seen higher prices, one of the reasons why it's hard to get a new car is because we don't have enough chips to make all the cars we could make and to make all the things we could make. So the president said, look, we're going to make this a priority so that we're not dependent on a foreign source of chips, so we're not dependent on long import times on those chips, so that we can re- really rejuvenate American manufacturing, advanced manufacturing of these more high-tech products, and uh, so that we can bring down costs. And so he proposed, along with bipartisan members of both the House and Senate, uh, legislation to really stimulate the production of chips. And in his State of the Union address uh, earlier this year, we had the CEO of Intel, which had promised to build the largest manufacturing facility in the history of the country in southwestern Ohio if Congress would pass this bill to encourage the manufacturing of chips. Congress did pass that bill, and the president was proud earlier this month to be at the groundbreaking for that facility outside of Columbus in Ohio. And so, uh, you know, we're going to see, and and even since then, uh, Micron's announced a major chips manufacturing facility up in Idaho when we're seeing more uh, U.S. investment in kinds of batteries we need for electric cars and all kinds of very advanced manufacturing. So they have one additional benefit uh, on top of all the other benefits I've mentioned so far, which is they create thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of good paying jobs, manufacturing jobs, six-figure manufacturing jobs who don't need a college degree. We're talking about uh, people who either have one or two years of specialized training or maybe a community college degree. They don't need a four-year college degree. So part of what the president's also said is he'd build an economy that works for everyone. We're obviously trying to get people to college who want to go to college, trying to make it affordable for them, trying to deal with that. But we also think that people should be able to have jobs they can raise a family on, they can, live, they can live a good life on, even if they choose not to go to college. And uh, ramping up our advanced manufacturing is a critical part of that. You have this unique situation with the Biden presidency of having an ex-president who is continually in the fray and trying desperately to insert himself into the discourse. Is that hard? Well, look, I would say that uh, Donald Trump is certainly unique. And uh, I definitely want to be careful not to comment on any of the investigations and the matter at Mar-a-Lago and all that. We're leaving that to the Justice Department. But in terms of his no longer Twitter feed, his truth social feed and <laughs> the rallies and all the, all the noise coming from Trump, the president's made it very clear to us. Our job is to do our jobs. His job is to do his job. And he got elected, I think, in large part because he promised people that he wouldn't be that kind of president. He'd be a very different kind of president. And it'd be a president who'd be focused on doing the things our country needs done, progress. Donald Trump, uh, when he was president, he announced almost every single week would be infrastructure week and an infrastructure bill never passed. <laughs> Joe Biden said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to get it passed. And he passed with bipartisan support, the largest infrastructure bill since Eisenhower was president. So, uh, you know, we're here, we're about getting things done. We're about making the country a better place. Uh, we have to stand up for democracy. It's vital. And I think we have to respond to the things Trump says uh, that are anti-democratic and the kind of movement he leads uh, that is trying to derail our democracy. But on a day-to-day basis, I think our fundamental goal here is to deliver on the economy, uh, on COVID, on race, on climate, and uh, you know, let Trump own truth social. <laughs> we're gonna own the truth and we're gonna get things done. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tim O'Brien is editor of Bloomberg Opinion. Welcome to Fast Politics, Tim O'Brien. Molly, 
I feel like we're old podcasting buds at this point. We totally are. And I had to talk to you because nothing happened this week. (laughs) Before we started taping, you were just saying, uh, we were talking about what a good Donald Trump impression you do. I apologize. (laughs) And you were saying, continue. Well, we, he and I were at Mar-a-Lago for a weekend in, let me think, it was probably 2005, the spring of 2005. He had a, a Ferrari there that he wanted to sort of show off to me. And he did not know how to drive it. You know, those Ferraris have gear shifters, paddle shifters on the steering wheel. They've probably changed since then. You know, that was, I think, the first and last time I was in a $250,000 car. <laughs> May, he was still wearing his golf clothes. And he said, I really want to show you something. <laughs> so we drove into downtown Palm Beach We pulled up to a stoplight. He put the windows down (laughs) and people on the corner began pointing at him. And he goes, isn't that amazing? (laughs) (laughs) Later that same night, I had dinner with Melania and him at Mar-a-Lago. And she went to bed after dinner and there was a sort of an event around the pool. And there were these giant, like six foot high speakers arrayed around the swimming pool. And Donald and I were standing at one end, and he was in a navy blue Brioni suit. I am not kidding. The song that was blaring out of the speakers was uh, Play That Funky Music, White Boy. Oh, Jesus. Mm. And he was doing the kind of white guy, bite your bottom lip (laughs) dance in his blue suit. And he asked him to really crank up the speakers. And, And he said, you know, I love blasting this music as loud as I possibly can because all of these MFers in Palm Beach never wanted me to be here. So I just play it as loud as I possibly can now to remind them that I'm here and I'm not going away. <laughs> and then he was president. Right, right. You, you really get the award, though, for the only person who covers Donald Trump, though, that's good at this imitation. Everybody else, if you cover him, you're bad at it. This is for oh, sure true. Wild. <laughs> I know you're happy to hear this. So let's talk about this week because... It was a very bad week for Donald Trump, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the consequences of Donald Trump uh, choosing a run for the presidency in 2015 have come home to roost on Donald Trump and his children. Right. You know, it, it came home to roost on the country and the Constitution and people of color and women and, and a lot of other groups prior to this. But he had somehow escaped the consequences of his own decisions, as he has so often throughout his life. And, you know, in this case, it was the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, indicting him for financial fraud. So that was Wednesday. But even like on Monday, Maggie Haberman had a piece in The New York Times which talked about how that Eric Hirschman had warned Trump that he was taking illegal stuff back to Mar-a-Lago and there could be... In other words, you know, and, and Hirschman was a star witness in the January 6th hearings too, in which he testified that, you know, they, they, they told him not to go down to the ellipse. Right. And that what he was doing there was inappropriate and possibly illegal and that Hirschman told other members of Trump's inner circle that he wasn't going to play any part in it. So this is the second time that Hirschman a lawyer has given a lawyer's inside account of telling Trump, don't do something, it's wrong, and Trump doing it anyway. And in a criminal case, that is evidence of intent. And that's the hurdle a prosecutor has to overcome in a criminal case if you're pursuing something that might end up with Donald Trump in prison. And so I think the Hirschman testimony is significant. And, you know, this he is mired in a tar pit of existential legal threats. There's the Tish James case, obviously. There's a an electoral fraud case with, with very hot 
tangible evidence in Georgia. Right. That's Fannie Willis, another black woman. Yes. Who is holding him responsible. I mean, and then we have Tish James has said that she will refer this to the Southern District of New York, which is different than Alvin Bragg, right? Well, what she's she's referring, I think, other evidence she's uncovered that she thinks amounts to a federal crime. Right. And she's referring it to both the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District and to the IRS. Right. So it suggests that what she's sending is evidence of, of criminal tax fraud. And you know, one way out of for Trump out of the civil charges that Tish James has filed is the allegations are that he duped banks, that right. he gave them false information and, and these unsophisticated poor little banker people didn't understand, which is a hard, a hard hurdle to overcome because banks are sophisticated lenders. It's really a lot harder when you say that IRS people should be equally sophisticated and vigilant and the burden is on them to make sure that you're not lying to them. And and in a way, I think that, you know, that referral could hold possibly more peril for him as things play out should should the IRS and the U.S. Attorney's Office pursue it. And also, I think that it's interesting. I mean, I still think like this all makes Alvin Bragg, the New York DA, continually look terrible, right? Because what is he doing? Well, you know, Molly, I have mixed thoughts about that. Oh, tell me. I think within that office, I think there was a disagreement among the prosecutors themselves about whether or not they had the goods for an airtight criminal fraud case. And I think the tension within that office revolved around, I think, some members of the prosecutorial team saying the stakes are too high. We've got to take this to court no matter what. And others saying, if we go there, it's a former president and it has to be airtight. And there was reasonable arguments to be made on both sides. And and you could argue that Cy Vance should have taken care of that before he left office and left this giant kind of complicated sandwich on Alvin Bragg's desk. Interesting. So I think, you know, I think, you know, Bragg has indicted Weisselberg, Trump's CFO. There's a good chance, you know, he's prosecuting the company still. So I don't think Trump's going to just fly out of that without consequence. But it's certainly I had thought for a long time that that was the most perilous case he was facing. And I don't investigation he was facing. And I don't think it is any longer. Oh, interesting. So what do you think it is? I think if Merrick Garland gets his boots on (laughs) and collects the evidence that, you know, the January 6th committee has surfaced so robustly and, and wonderfully that there should be a federal indictment there for fraud on the American public and interfering with a congressional proceeding. And, you know, in in one word, what could just be called a coup. Right. So interesting. The thing that I find fascinating is then he decided, like a normal person would say, like, I'm I'm facing all of these legal problems. I should probably take a low profile. But instead, Donald Trump decides to go on Sean Hannity's show. And accompanied by the two Krakens in his midst, his two sons who right. went, took to Twitter and said politics and <laughs> nothing wrong here, which is just, you know, they also are both defendants. So right. you would have thought they would have been more judicious, but you, you know, being judicious is not a Trump family trait. No. And then the Potter Familius goes on Hannity and just starts spouting the same kind of nonlinear, unhinged word salad that he always does at moments when he's really cornered. Right. And he clearly feels cornered. And he's, you know, 
he doesn't have good legal game. <laughs> you know, his default is to play media game, playing it really badly right now. Right. I mean, that's what's interesting. What I thought was interesting was I think that the takeaway from that interview that many of us took away was different people say different things. But as I understand it, if you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying it's declassified, <laughs> even by thinking about it. Well, so, you know, what's interesting to me about that is, you know, Donald Trump famously sued me. We, we deposed him <laughs> for two days in December of uh, 2007. And during the course of that, we asked him a lot of questions about his everything. But we were zeroing in on, on how he valued his golf courses. And because he had provided no paperwork for how he actually got to the, these kind of crazy valuations he had. And and my attorney said, well, do you have profit and loss statements for the, for the golf course? And he said, no, I don't have any of those. And they said, well, then how do you decide what they're worth? And he said, mental projections. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and, you know, Donald Trump's sense of himself, the world around him, his history, his abilities, and how he conducts himself has been one big mental projection. So, of course, he's going to say that he can mentally project declassification of state secrets when it suits him. Unfortunately, that's actually not how the law works. Right. But it is interesting. I mean, he basically is going along this Richard Nixon it's not a crime if the president does it. Well, Nixon was wrong, too. And it's always interesting, you know, it's always interesting when people think they have superpowers that enable them to blow off the Constitution and the law. And that's why I think this moment is so important, because we have to stand up for the rule of law and for institutions and for the idea that you're not allowed to stick nuclear secrets in your stocks <laughs> and store them in an old closet drawer at your beach club slash house in Palm Beach. <laughs> How do you think, I mean, you really know Trump and you're very smart. How do you think this plays out? I don't know. I've been wrong so many times. I think one of the myths about Trump is that he routinely escapes culpability. He got past the Mueller probe and past two impeachments, and that he's had a life of the this and the that, and has never been held accountable. Well, law enforcement never chose to hold him seriously accountable mm. throughout his life. It happened once when he and his father got investigated for racial discrimination in their housing projects in the early 1970s, and they got held accountable for that. After that, he never did. The stakes went up when he became president. I think people began circling him and trying to make sure that his worst tendencies didn't unravel the national fabric. And he now, as we said earlier in the show, you know, he's now got very existential legal consequences facing him because of his own actions. He lacks the power of the presidency. His celebrity is not enough to save him from this. Neither are his personal finances. And his business is under siege. I think there's a very high possibility Donald Trump is going to get indicted in at least one of these venues that we've talked about. Yeah. And it also seems like this legal team has to be so expensive. Right. And, you know, I really want to I hope that part of the investigation of Trump includes how he's paying his legal bills, Right. because if they're coming out of campaign donations that all of his credulous small dollar donors have, have made to him to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I think there's a real 
I think, question about whether or not that's a fraudulent use of the funds. And, you know, his PACs are being investigated now uh, as well. You know, Donald Trump's a wealthy man. Even if he's not a billionaire, he has ample resources. I think he can probably afford to pay his legal bills on his own, but he's also a wildly cheap person. And if he could find another piggy bank to dip into, he might have done that even if it would have been wiser for him to use his own money. The GOP is paying for some amount of Trump's legal bills. Right. And I don't know enough about campaign finance law to know whether or not that's appropriate. But apart from that, the fact that the GOP is willing to pay for some of these bills is an indicator of, I think, the kind of twisted integration that exists between Trump, Trumpism, and the modern Republican Party. And the fact that even now, the party elders are afraid to completely alienate him. And supposedly the sense is they kind of told him or what was announced recently was that they would stop paying whatever part of the legal bills they were paying if he announced before the midterms. You know, he's not going to pay attention to anybody. Right. I mean, he's just not going to listen to what the party needs or what Republicans voters voters need. He's going to think Donald Trump, yeah. you can understand everything Donald Trump does through two lenses, self-aggrandizement or self-preservation. From July 27th, uh, Jonathan Carl scoop, RNC warning to Trump, if you run for president, we'll stop paying your legal bills, officials say. Yeah, you know, those always feel to me like trial balloon right. kinds of stories. And he is a huge fundraiser still. He is a huge draw for money for the party. He makes or breaks certain kinds of candidates, though not all of them. And, you know, in a lot of ways, the GOP is his party now, even if he's not sitting atop of it, because Trumpism is the coin of the realm. Yeah. Jesus. So depressing. Thank you so much, Tim. This was great. Thanks, Molly. Thanks for having me. And now your moment of fuckery. Our special guest for a moment of fuckery is going to be one Rick Wilson. So do you want to go first or should I go first? Sure. My moment of fuckery is every fucking reporter in the country who doesn't (laughs) understand what Ron DeSantis did to them this week. Oh, interesting. When he jerked them off about the second flight to Delaware, they should have understood right then, stop covering the bullshit. This is a 2024 campaign operation. Right. Treat it like that, and you can see exactly why he's doing it. He's looking to drive into the Republican valence where Trump triumphed over all the other morons in the field. That was immigration. Trump knew that they would say, you can't say that about Mexicans. And Trump knew that they would say, oh, whoa, how impractical. And it didn't matter because he understood the base better. That's a that's reporters thinking this is about immigration are making are totally missing the boat on what this guy's doing. Immigration, this is a subject-object collision problem. The entire operation is the 2024 Republican primary. That's what's happening here. Yeah. That's, that's my moment of fuckery. That was brilliant. Which if I had a podcast, I might have thought of having one of those. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. Well, my moment of fuckery is the Michigan GOP candidate for governor, Tudor Dixon. Who Vampire is- porn. <laughs> Wait, what does that mean? If you just go ahead and Google Tudor Dixon vampire porn, you will be illuminated. No, I don't want to do that right now. She was in Showtime like softcore porn movies in the 1990s. 
Anyway, when not getting eaten by zombies, we've gone down a real fucking rabbit hole. Tudor Dixon was making fun of Gretchen Whitmere for almost for the kidnapping plot where she was almost kidnapped. The sad thing is that Gretchen will tie your hands, put a gun to your head and ask if you're ready to talk. For someone so worried about being kidnapped, Gretchen Whitmer sure is good at taking business hostage and holding it for ransom. And I think that's quite fucked up. And so that goes for my moment of fuckery, which you have now upstaged, Rick Wilson, again. You know, Molly, I, I have I have a few gifts, and I have to just make take full advantage of them. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.